0: Hello, this is Phoebe Smith for Public. Today I'm speaking with Mike Hume, a University of Cambridge geographer and veteran climate researcher. We untangle the complexities of climate science and discuss climate activism, alarmism, reductionism, and climatism, an ideology that Hume explores in his newest book, Climate Changes in Everything. So how did you first get interested in researching the climate and why did you wanna pursue a PhD in applied climatology?
1: So this goes back quite a long way in my career. Way back into the nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties, um, uh, when I just finished a geography degree and I got interested in what we're calling geography climatology, the study of climates, it, it attracted my interest. I'd never been in Africa, uh, and so I was successful in getting that studentship uh, and spent three or four years doing the PhD. And this was at a time in the early early eighties, moving into the mid eighties, when science of climate change of human induced climate change was beginning to take shape uh, it was still i would say very much a science issue at the time it wasn't particularly in the public consciousness it certainly wasn't a political uh, a, a item on people's agendas at that point um and so it sort of set me up i suppose then for the next steps in my career that i trained as a climatologist. uh, And just around the time that this issue was beginning to make its presence felt in the public arena, I had some of the requisite skills to be able to take that forward.
0: So in 2009, you published a book, Why We Disagree About Climate Change. And I'm kind of curious, so you're talking about doing your research in the 80s, and then that's in 2009, you published that book. When did you first see number one, polarization just around climate? And then when did you begin? And then when did you see that polarization kind of see- seep out into public consciousness?
1: Yeah, so a lot happened between the mid-80s and 2009. And uh, obviously, there was this rising uh, uh, public awareness, political attention being paid to uh, human-induced climate change. The science particularly that emerged through the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, first uh, appeared, the first report I think was 1990, second report 96, third report 2001. So so the issues uh, were gaining public uh, a- a- attention. And of course, the questions around climate change Then, as well, how serious a risk is this? what are the various forms of interventions that societies could make both to mitigate the uh, the hazard, let's call it that for the moment, uh, but also how societies might adapt to the risks that climate change might pose to future societies. And as these questions became more politically acute during the 1990s uh, and into the early 2000s, more uh, and more varied political actors uh, and interest groups began to have their voice heard, um, both within governments through lobbying and through public campaigning. Um, And I think the range of human activities that climate change touches both the reasons why humans are having an influence on the climate system through our energy systems transportation systems through agriculture land use the whole range of things human behaviors human consumptions and also the potential range of impacts of that climate change, pretty much every sector of society has a stake of some sort in this whole phenomenon so the range of voices became much greater and at some point i guess it was around about 2005 2006 something quite interesting i observed Uh, within the research community uh, that I was at that stage leading, in fact, uh, a major national research centre, was that we were all there uh, as researchers, scientists, social scientists, researching this, uh, supposedly all on the same page uh, as researchers seeking solutions to climate change. But actually, what we meant by a solution to climate change was actually quite different, just as academics. And yet we were not Really willing to dive into the different reasons why our preferred solutions to climate change were better than anyone else's. There was a sort of a tacit silence within our research networks, even though actually we all knew that we had quite different uh, responses to climate change, and that intrigued me really as to why this silence. Why were we pretending, as it were, that? The solutions to climate change were as it were, self-evident we didn't really need to debate them or argue them or justify them and yet at the same time we actually knew that that the various responses were different and that and that was what the trigger was really for writing the book why we disagree partly to, to try to explain to myself why my colleagues <laughs> um, had this veil of silence but also of course as i wrote the book realizing that, that this has much wider resonance in societies so even if we may agree that the phenomenon of human-induced climate change is real what we think of as a solution to that will vary radically according to a whole variety of beliefs values attitudes uh, ethical considerations one's politics and so on and that was what i was trying to unpack in the book try to to, to shed some light on those underlying reasons um, for disagreement. Um, And it seemed to me essential to make that move because I I don't think there's really any chance that we can do politics around climate change constructively without understanding the underlying reasons why our positions on climate change solutions are so different. But exposing those reasons, giving them like giving them airtime, debating them openly is a prerequisite to, to doing good policy.
0: So it's interesting because you're talking about specifically in 2005 and 2006, and I believe that's when you published a piece in the BBC called Chaotic World of Climate Truth. And in that piece, it was funny because you pulled out a quote, I believe, from someone, a researcher in the EU, And they were talking about how, oh, in 10 to 15 years, you know, like we're going to see, you know, all these unprecedented changes um, if we don't come up with solutions now. And obviously it's 15, 20 years after that and we're still doing okay Um, Mm. But I'm curious. So you're you're touching on how researchers characterize what's seen as a solution differently than what an activist might. What are the key differences there when you're talking about solutions or especially when someone's saying we need to come up with a solution in X amount of time? Um, Mm. what, What are the mistakes there?
1: Yeah. So actually, that 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 piece, uh, that opinion piece I wrote for the BBC, was part of part of my sort of process of inquiry um, uh, into underlying reasons for disagreement. In the sense that I, I observed back in two thousand and six, which of course has actually become very much more vocalized in the last five years, that, that there is only a, a certain amount of time left before it's too late uh this this meme this cultural meme of urgency of limits uh, of of uh, 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 urgency that this was sort of foreshadowed back in two thousand and six and i i I questioned it at the time this idea of of putting putting limits uh, on on when policy actions needs to be accomplished by um partly because that was not how I read the science of climate change, but also uh, uh, and again we have seen this explode in the last five years as more and more institutions and political jurisdictions declare climate emergencies uh, it, declaring an emergency has a dampening or a chilling effect on politics it, it it actually suggests certainly within democracies at least it, it suggests that actually there isn't time for normal democratic processes to work their way through competing. Political interests, to seek compromises, to find pragmatic interventions. No, if one's living in an emergency, uh, then then one has to act now. Uh, and there just isn't time to evaluate alternative courses of action and to work out actually what some of the secondary or tertiary consequences are of policies that at the face value might appear to be self evidently a good thing because it will mitigate climate change. But actually, a little bit more thought and care begins to realize you begin to realize that some of the secondary consequences. Downstream may actually perversely make the issues around climate change worse so th- this was what I was observing for oh, nearly twenty years ago now, uh, and, and of course the solutions then that different actors were proposing I mean the one that was most well there were two or three actually that were particularly acute within my research networks one was the place of nuclear energy, uh, very strong uh, opinions on both sides on both sides of that whether nuclear needed to be part of an energy portfolio of the future, or whether actually it, it should be completely written out of any uh, energy future. That was one uh, 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 divisive device issue. Another was uh, the idea that some of my researchers were trialing the idea of, um, I think at the time we called them domestic tradable quotas, really as personal carbon budgets. Uh, that, that, that this would actually use a, an individualized market-based mechanism to uh, provide incentives for individual consumers to reduce their carbon footprint and surpluses um, uh, of carbon permits that they therefore say it could be sold on a, on a trading scheme um, to bring revenue. So, it's, so so, this was highly contentious. Uh, some thought that using market-based individual mechanisms was a great idea. It fed into a particular form of uh, human behavior. Others saw this as simply perpetuating neoliberalism <laughs> at, at its worst. So, so these were a- examples, I guess, of of the sorts of uh, debates um, that I felt needed exposure. Um, yes, everybody wanted to do something about climate change, but how we thought about a solution to climate change was actually quite different. And then, if we throw it also, uh, and this emerged a little bit later. Uh, the way in which we uh, think about this whole question about um, whether how does one how does one value in relative terms uh, the life chances of the unborn future generations vis-à-vis the inequalities that we see in the world today um, uh, 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 amongst um, welfare uh, uh, distributed around the world. It, it, Uh, Is one's ethical framework one that gives much greater weight to the unborn, or actually are we giving more weight to the uh, uh, disadvantaged, uh, disenfranchised, disempowered people living in the world today? And that's an ethical trade-off. It's not one that science will be able to find some uh, universal answer to it, it actually reveals the underlying ways in which different people value human beings, human beings alive today, as opposed to human beings uh, yet to be born, and and so this also became a really uh, important um, dividing line, uh, and and it still is actually today when thinking about the efficacy of different climate politics uh, policies, uh, are we are we waiting the future or are we waiting uh, the inequalities of the world today.
0: So is that somewhat when you are you start talking about the future and how people weigh their values differently, is that partially what um, inspired you to write your paper about climate reductionism in 2011? Um, I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about what climate reductionism is, and also if it's different from alarmism in the way that they might feed into each other, because I feel like they at first glance they might seem like the same thing, but it's interesting how the two hmm. kind of c- compound on each other.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's that they're related, but they are actually quite different, somewhat different phenomena. And I I used this phrase climate reductionism uh, in 2011, um, and and certainly it's related to this idea of how we think about the future uh, and and what was concerning me. Uh, then and it still is today and actually my latest book you know climate changes and everything goes into this in more detail because climate reductionism seems to have a tenacious hold on the human imagination Um, but I first used this 10 or more years ago to draw attention to this sort of strange way in which climate gained the ascendancy when thinking about how the future would unfold. Um, all sorts of things, of course, are in motion uh, as we think about the, the, the planetary world, the human world, the social world. Uh, climate is one of those. It, it is changing. Uh, there's no question in my mind about that. But many other things are changing, too. And actually, many things are changing more rapidly. than Climate is changing. Mm-hmm. And yet, when we listen to a lot of the climate commentary and advocacy, it almost is, is as though the thing that will really determine the next 25, 50, 7,500 years, is going to be what happens to our planet. And I think the reason for this, as I pointed to in that paper, was that there are very sophisticated, computationally uh, powerful, epistemically authoritative models that scientists have developed about how the Earth system will evolve. And you know, climate modelling has become a huge, huge industry getting billions of dollars of public uh, and some private investment uh, to use these models to see into the future, to see into the looking glass and to say, well, the climate will be like this or this or this in 50 or 100 years time. Now, all that's all very well. Uh, and, and certainly there is definitely skill in some of those predictions, I believe, but they're also shrouded in uncertainties. On the other hand, all the other things that are going to shape the human future Things like changes in medical technology, um, uh, military conflict between nations, pandemics, the rise of artificial intelligence, um, uh, new developments in nanotechnology and new uh, material science. All of these things are going to have radically powerful effects on the human world as well. And uh, They don't have behind them the epistemic authority of a mathematically rooted uh, model that can predict 50 or 100 years into the future. So because the appearance is that we can predict climate, but we can't predict all these other things, the, the move is that one gives disproportionate weight to climate as a determinant of the future. And, and, and all these other things sort of drop away, either they're completely ignored, or if they're considered, they're just considered in a, in a rudimentary way, because they don't have the power of a computer predictive model behind them. And this is what I mean by climate reductionism, the future is reduced or determined by climate alone. And that to me is an inadequate uh, way in which we should be thinking about the future. And it leads to, and this is where the connection with climate alarmism comes in, it therefore provokes A sense of alarm or more excessively catastrophe or doom, because climate is predicted to evolve in this particular way, then the world as we know it today won't possibly be able to survive that change of climate, because all the other adaptations, technological innovations, all the other challenges that uh, human societies will have to face are ignored. And so, climate becomes the siren bell that is sounding louder and louder, and there is nothing to temper uh, the alarm bells that, that, that come from uh, that form of climate advocacy. so So, climate reductionism and climate alarmism are two different phenomenon, but they are related, I think, in the way that I've tried to describe.
0: So you've mentioned your new book as well, and that's where you begin to talk about climatism. I mean, it's titled Liberating Climate Politics from Alarmism. So I'm curious, what is climatism and how do we liberate our politics from this alarmism?
1: So, so uh, you know, I use the phrase, uh, I use the term "climate" in this book. It, it's, a, it's not a term that's really been used at all much uh, in the climate discourse or climate debate. Um, And I use it really to drive home, I suppose, my earlier argument about climate reductionism. Um, Because what then happens is if climate is given this premier place uh, as a determinant of the future, then more and more phenomena, whether they're social, ecological, cultural, psychological, uh, more and more things are brought under the influence of climate as determinant. Uh, the empire of climate, as uh, someone uh, phrased it. Everything becomes subservient to the state of climate and to the future of climate. And it, it struck me that this then leads, in effect, to an ideology. And, and this, of course, is how we're more familiar with isms, isms. Uh, You know, whether in political senses, Marxism, communism, um, or or in other areas of uh, cultural life uh, that perhaps don't quite have the same political resonances, but, you know, Romanticism or Cubism in art. uh, These are structured ways of imposing a particular framework or scaffold on the world to give it some order and meaning. And actually, humans require these types of ideologies, we require these scaffolds in order just to make sense of a world that otherwise would be just too chaotic and too disorienting um, if we didn't have these scaffolds or structures. So ideologies are innate, I would argue, to to, to the human imagination, to the human mind. Uh, But for climate to become an ideology, for climate change to become an ideology, seems to me rather disconcerting. Uh, and so I wanted to, to, to shine some light on this. I, I use the phrase climatism. I explain what I mean by it. Um, and then I explain what I think some of the dangers are uh, of this ideology gripping uh, the imagination, the mind uh, of many, um, both civic actors, but also political uh, agents and, and activists. Um, uh, and it's this, uh, it, and it brings together some of the other threads that we've already talked about before the dangers of reductionism, the dangers of climate alarmism, the dangers of saying that we only have five or 10 years to save the planet. So um, mm-hmm. politics then has to take place under these emergency conditions. These all are all symptoms of uh, a, a public mind that is in the grip of the ideology of climatism. Um, and it leads to poor politics. It leads to one, what I call one-eyed making, um, And it actually perversely, as I said before, it perversely can very quickly lead to undermining some of the very specific goals of human well-being that led us to be concerned about climate change in the first place. And the example that I, I, I like to use to illustrate what I mean by this is that if climate change is everything, if the future is reduced to climate, the way we've constructed this problem is that we've measured this as a, through a proxy called global temperature. Global temperature becomes this proxy that stands in for everything uh, that is bad about climate change. And we see this you know headline we've seen actually going back 20 or 30 years of climate negotiations but most powerfully we saw this headlined in the paris agreement in 2015 where the goal of climate policies is to restrain global warming in the range between 1.5 and 2 degrees above the pre-industrial so these numbers are in play 1.5 to 2. that's the range that's the target and Again, this is a, another form of reductionism. <laughs> Everything is collapsed into this one policy goal. Um, and actually, that the, the other associated policy goal of net zero emissions can be traced back directly to this proxy of global temperature. You need to have a global temperature target before you can actually have a net zero target. And if this is what politic, climate policies are aimed to do, Then policies, the effectiveness of policies, and we see this happening routinely now since the Paris Agreement, The, the effectiveness of policies are evaluated according to the degree to which they contribute to ensuring that this temperature target is met. So you'll see any number of analyses these days conducted that tries to model the effect of current policies that have been enacted, policies that have been promised, policies that are embedded in the national uh, communications to the UNFCCC, models will evaluate all these and they will measure the effectiveness of these policies according to whether the world warms by 1.8 degrees, 2.2 degrees, 2.7 degrees, whatever. Everything becomes measurable against this benchmark of global temperature. Well, if that really is the target of climate policies, then it paves the way for what we might call brute force solutions. Most notably is the idea of solar geoengineering. That by pumping particulates into the stratosphere, it actually isn't very difficult to, in effect, produce a sunscreen uh, uh, around the planet uh, that will shave off Two, four, six, eight, six, eight, ten tenths of a degree Celsius, and ensure that we keep the temperature below two degrees. That then becomes effectively the solution. All it solves, it, it 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 means that the Paris Agreement might meet its goals. It actually hasn't done anything at all to address some of the underlying reasons for concern. Of why we're concerned about climate change in the first place, which is about the effects that it may have on on biodiversity, uh, on livelihoods of vulnerable communities, uh, on in- infrastructural assets uh, in the global north—you know—all of the reasons why we're concerned um, have actually got very little to do with global temperature, um, and yet we've now given the appearance that we've solved the problem of climate change uh, by making these one-eyed interventions that brings global temperature under control. And this is, to me, a logical outworking of the ideology of climatism, putting climate at the top of the agenda, measuring it by global temperature, and making everything else subservient to this one goal uh, of stopping uh, warming, breaching a particular... Um, what actually is a... People talk about this as a scientific threshold. This is actually it's a political threshold. That there's no There's no cliff edge... It's not as though the world suddenly <laughs> moves from a safe climate to a dangerous climate at 1.5, or if the world uh, exceeds two degrees, suddenly everyone drops off a cliff edge. <laughs> Those types of precipices don't exist in, uh, in climate science. So these, these thresholds are uh, they're, they're, they're politically negotiated rather than scientifically determined, uh, and they're not cliff edges. It's not as though suddenly if we go to 2.1 degrees, uh, we're in a qualitatively different world than if we're in a world of 1.9 degrees. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.